Well, hello and Happy New Year. You're listening to the Called Out Cafe, and my name is Doug Hooley. This is episode number 12 in the series titled Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my most recent book. Can you guess the title of that book? That's right. It's Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. And it is available on Amazon.com in paperback, hardcover, and Kindle editions. Well, besides finishing up the book uh, in the fall and producing what's normally uh, a weekly podcast, you know, you may have noticed I do miss a week here or there uh, because of holidays or illness or whatever. But recently I've been working on several different video projects. If you're not aware, I have a YouTube channel. I recently started offering the Called Out Cafe in YouTube format. As, as of now, I've not uploaded any of the past Called Out Cafe series, but I hope to do so in the coming months. Well, in November, I produced a three-part series which debunks the arguments that people use to support the Flat Earth Theory. As if that should need doing. <laughs> I debunk both the unbiblical arguments that they use, as well as the science, so-called science, <laughs> behind the theory. I produced this series because of the increase of interest in the topic, and sadly, the belief in the theory on the part of many, I'm talking millions, of Christians. If that does or does not include you, uh, you may be interested in the series. It's just interesting to know what people believe, if nothing else. Well, I did a series last year on the biblical history of the spirit realm. So if you listen to that series, you know that I believe the Bible portrays a very real and active unseen spirit realm that surrounds and influences our physical world. I'm completely convinced that today... And for about the past two or three years, there's a focused effort on the part of the forces of Satan to utilize conspiracy theories and polarized politics to cause division and anxiety and violence and strife, you know, specifically in the United States and to a lesser extent abroad. You know, I talked quite a little bit about uh, princes and authorities that over geographic regions of the world that God put over these regions of the world, clear back at the Tower of Babel. So I believe that it is very likely that there is a high-ranking evil prince who wields great authority and is very skilled in the art of deception that is probably in charge of this satanic effort. Pure evil. Well, Please hear me here. I am not saying I believe these dark forces are orchestrating the situations behind the conspiracy theories and that those theories are true. <laughs> I believe these dark forces are behind what is oftentimes an angry and passionate belief in these theories, which for the most part are not true. I'm talking about believing in these theories that are often based on untrue information or partially true information. But get this, almost all the theories have seeds of truth in them that their adherents can point to and say, look, see, this is true, as if that makes the rest true. But they take the truth and twist it to support a greater lie. Well, uh, one of those theories is the flat earth theory, that the earth is not a sphere, but a flat disk covered by an invisible protective, protective dome called the firmament that the stars were placed in. The arguments in favor of this theory are nothing short of childishly, childishly, childishly get me, <laughs> bizarre. Scripture is completely twisted to support the theory. Well, if you want to understand what I'm talking about, the series is called World Upside Down. I use a video that is titled World Upside Down, that is put forth by promoters of the Flat Earth Theory as a basis to uh, show how, I'll just say it, ridiculous <laughs> their arguments are. And that's on my YouTube channel. 
Another two-part video series I produced in November is called How to Tell if It's the End of the World. In, in these videos, I address the perpetual issue of people trying to superimpose today's headlines over the top of Bible prophecy. The results of misusing prophecy in this way is always the same. People make false predictions. They do this while ignoring the fact that there are at least seven unmistakable hard-to-miss signs that will in fact take place prior to the return of Jesus. And I talk about those signs in the videos. Well, another video I produced is titled, How to Tell if You've Taken the Mark of the Beast. That should sound intriguing. This is in response to another ongoing issue, that of speculating what form the mark of the beast, mentioned in Revelation chapter 13, will take. The greatest theory most recently is that it had something to do with the coronavirus injections. Many pastors were preaching this. If you want to see why that's not even close to having any credibility, please watch the video, again, on my YouTube channel. Because of the popularity of that video, How to Tell If You've Taken the Mark of the Beast, I mean, it got, it's up to over a couple thousand views, and normally I'll get like uh, maybe a couple hundred views. So anyway, very popular video. I uh, picked up on the fact, and based on the comments, that there is a lot of confusion about uh, that kind of thing. Mark of the Beast, 666, Antichrist, the Beast, all that stuff. So the last two videos that have most recently been working on have to do with the number 666, or more appropriately, 666. The first video is titled, What Does the Number 666 Represent? And the second is titled, Why 666 Does Not Represent Caesar Nero. Uh, why that one? As a lot of people who believe that most Bible prophecies were already fulfilled in the past believe Nero was the beast referred to in Revelation. And his name equals the number 666 when spelled out in the Hebrew language. Well, this video... Uh, lists many reasons why that theory is simply not biblically true. Well, so that catches you up. Uh, sorry it took a few minutes, but I wanted you to be caught up on the things that I'm working on. Um, if you decide to check out my YouTube channel and find it is of use to you and of interest to you, please, please remember to subscribe to the channel. That feeds into an algorithm that helps with people being able to find the video. In other words, the more people, the video or channel uh, that, that is subscribed to it or likes it, the easier it is for people to find it because of the, uh, the monkey business that YouTube does uh, with their algorithms. To date, I have never received a dime or any other denomination, for producing any of these videos. That is not my motivation. Man, I spend tons of hours. It's like you know, at least a part-time, sometimes part-time to full-time job doing this stuff, depending on what else I have going on in my life. But I have not received a dime. It's just, it's important to me. My motivation is, well, at the very core of my motivation, it is to do what I believe my master wants me to be doing. Um, a subset of that motivation is to expose people to what I believe the truth is in the midst of a great deal of false teaching that's the product of 2,000 years of accumulated religious muck that's being piled up on top of Scripture. I'm trying to scrape that muck away. So, my plan is to continue to produce a number of short, instructive videos while I also bring you this podcast. But, of course, we'll see what God has in store for me. So, now as they say, on with the show. Well, people discouraged with what's going on in their failing local church have often been driven to return to the ecclesia's beginnings, as recorded in the book of Acts. Looking for a biblical formula for the Christian religion, they hope they can replicate what took place in the first century. After all, the early ecclesia was established under the watchful eyes of the apostles. Now, of course, we all know that according to the scriptures, those that were among the early ecclesia were very successful in growing spiritually and in unity. Not 
<laughs> and as proof of their formula that it was correct, the number of authentic believers grew rapidly. Also, not. <laughs> if you type in, quote, how to do church like the church in Acts, unquote, and you type that into Google, you're going to get over 219 million results. Pages you can link to are going to include characteristics of a healthy church, or the fellowship of believers, or the secret weapon of the Acts church, or how about the church in Acts, a formula for success or faithfulness, or identifying the church of the New Testament. How about church as it was meant to be, or even the book of Acts, a pattern for modern church growth. I'm going to stop there since I don't have room for all 219 million hits. But suffice it to say, going back to Acts to figure out how to do church is a popular approach. But was what took place in Jerusalem following Pentecost meant to be replicated? Was this unique, extraordinary historical event meant to serve as a formula or pattern for future local ecclesias? The book of Acts, chapter 2, is where the story of Pentecost is found. To set the scene, Jesus had ascended into the sky and disappeared into a cloud just 10 days earlier, not long earlier. Forty days earlier, Jesus rose from the grave in his glorified eternal body. Well, during that 40-day period, Jesus appeared to over 500 people, wide-awake people, and at different times. Sometime prior to Jesus' ascension, as he was staying with them, he ordered or commanded the 11 remaining apostles. Remember, Judas, was, Judas, Judas Iscariot was no longer with them. He, anyway, he ordered them to remain in Jerusalem for, quote, a little while, unquote. Jesus told them that they will be, quote, baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here's part of uh, that passage. This is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they waited. However, the eleven did not wait alone. There were other followers of Jesus with them. Although some may have joined the group after seeing Jesus following the resurrection, others had tagged along with Jesus and his closest twelve disciples, witnessing Jesus' miracles and teachings during Jesus' entire ministry, which was probably a little over three years. The Bible records that several women were also present in the upper room in Jerusalem. This included Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's likely that the wives of those disciples that were married were among the approximate 120 people present. The brothers of Jesus were also there. This may have been the same upper room that Jesus and the disciples shared the Passover meal together in, or what's come to be known as the Last Supper. While they waited, the Bible says the faithful continued to earnestly pray together and that they were of one mind in their prayers. They may have been experiencing a combination of anxiety and excitement, and maybe even a little fear, since they had no idea of what form being baptized by the Holy Spirit would take, or when exactly that would occur. They were likely spending time studying the Scriptures. Of course, that was the Old Testament that they would have had to study, because there wasn't any New Testament. They were living out what was yet to be documented, documented in the New Testament. At one point, the Apostle Peter stood up among them and either quoted or read from the book of Psalms. After the Holy Spirit had come upon the Apostles, it appeared that at least Peter had been studying the Scriptures since he demonstrated a knowledge of Scripture that was not previously apparent. He was more Scripture savvy. But when the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples and their friends were all still in the upper room. Pentecost was and is a regular Jewish holiday known as Shavuot. 
It's the fourth of Israel's seven high holy days that are referred to as the Feasts of the Lord. Three out of seven of the holy feasts were considered solemn. Shavat or Pentecost, uh, Pentecost is just the, the Greek form of Shavat, was one of these three solemn feasts, which God specified that all Israelite men were to be physically present themselves at the temple in Jerusalem when this feast takes place. Well, because of this, there were many out-of-town visitors in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Scripture from the Old Testament books of Ezekiel and Habakkuk were read on Shavat. These passages were probably read by those gathered in the upper room the morning of Pentecost. The language in those scriptures describe an awesome vision that Ezekiel had of God. The description of the vision included what appeared to be fire, or whirlwinds, and rushing sounds. Habakkuk also saw God revealed in fire and bright light. Well, no doubt these images were still fresh in the minds of those in the upper room, when the natural world around them gave way to the supernatural. It was about nine o'clock in the morning when the following happened. Listen to this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with their other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. A normal Jewish holiday turned into a unique, awe-inspiring, one-of-a-kind day. Although we do read of people individually receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, we never see these exact circumstances or signs repeated in the Bible. God, exercising his unique right to do so, accomplished his will that day by acting outside of the normal rules of nature. He could have quietly instilled his Holy Spirit into his elect but he wanted to provide a clear sign that this was a very significant, world-changing event, unlike anything that had ever taken place before. He not only wanted to get the attention of those that received the Holy Spirit that day, but everyone in Jerusalem. Listen to this from Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. If I didn't say that before, that's Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Devout Jews from all over the known world had traveled to Jerusalem to observe Shabbat as commanded in the Old Testament. As they left the temple that morning, their religious pilgrimage if they'd ever made the trip before, had turned into something very different this year. They heard the rushing of an unexplainable supernatural wind coming from the building that the disciples were in. And when they made their way to the plaza outside the building, the disciples came out and started speaking to each visitor in their own native language. This confounded them as the locals recognized the disciples, and they knew they were from the region of the Galilee. They knew most of the disciples were uneducated and shouldn't have known all the various languages that they were speaking, but there they were doing it. Peter stood before the great crowd that gathered and provided them with an explanation of what they had just witnessed. He preached, utilizing scripture to point out that Jesus, who was raised from the dead a few weeks earlier, was the Messiah, the Messiah that they had all been waiting for, and that they had crucified him. There's some news for you. When they heard Peter say these things, they were convicted and cut to the heart, and they asked Peter what they should do. Peter told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. And now, I'll pause here for a second and, and remind you that uh, we are told elsewhere in Scripture that it is only the enlightenment and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that will result in what took place there at Pentecost. Well, 
As a result of that conviction, about 3,000 people that day were called out from amongst the rest and added to the ranks of the ecclesia. They repented, were baptized, and received the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. It was a truly phenomenal, divinely appointed event. Not only was it a phenomenal event, but it is no coincidence that it took place on Shavat. What God accomplished with His Holy Spirit was the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks, Shavat, Pentecost. Just as Jesus had fulfilled what the Passover feast had all been about by becoming the ultimate Passover lamb sacrificed, the first day of the harvest of the ecclesia had begun. The 3,000 that were added to the number of the ecclesia were the first fruits of the summer harvest. That's what Pentecost is all about. And there would be many to follow. The harvest will continue until Jesus returns, and he finishes it in person. Only a few today seriously suggest that if the ecclesia behave like those gathered in the upper room, the same type of miracles will happen. It's what occurred in the aftermath in the lives of the ecclesia in Jerusalem that people to attempt to hold up as a pattern of what should be occurring today amongst the ecclesia. This is, again, from Acts chapter 2, this time verses 42 to 47. Listen to this. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So out of this passage of Scripture comes several, which it's normally four core principles that, according to some, the ecclesia should be living by today because of this pattern that we see in this passage of Scripture, at least a pattern they say is a pattern. The first would be sitting under the teaching of the apostles. Of course, that would be somebody uh, teaching what the apostles had written in the Bible. Secondly, it would be fellowshipping with one another. Third, the breaking of bread which many think this means taking communion. And four, prayer. So there's your core four uh, things that people glean from that passage on what the church today should be doing. We can add to that now other things that people have gleaned from this passage. Number five would be sharing all things in common. This includes giving. Six, regular attendance in the temple. Seven, is corporate worship. So, it's thought that the benefits of doing all these things on this list, why would you do that? Because it'll have the same results as it did for the early ecclesia. Well, those results include sound doctrine or teaching that will be followed, signs and wonders will occur if you get this formula right, The needs of all will be met. Gladness and simplicity of heart or contentment contentment and unity will be achieved. Favor with all people will be gained. And, of course, a big one, the numbers of believers in the local community will grow exponentially if we just get this early church formula right. Perhaps thousands of new disciples of Jesus were hanging around Jerusalem for longer than normal after the holiday of Shabbat because of the incredible Holy Spirit-driven experience that they'd just had on Pentecost. No one wanted to leave. I mean, can you imagine what just took place? And you're thinking that Jesus is returning soon. Don't you want to stay in Jerusalem with the apostles? Well, maybe 
It was because Peter had used some scriptures out of the Old Testament book of Joel that spoke of the end of the age, and they thought that the second coming was imminent, and there was no better place to be when Jesus would return. Why do you want to go home to Greece? This is where Jesus is going to return to. What happened post-Pentecost can be compared to an emotionally charged positive experience, like going to a church camp when you're a kid. By the end of the week, you've made great friends and possibly had an emotional, unique experience with God. I remember such experiences. They were powerful and moving, and I didn't want it to end. Or it might be compared to a honeymoon or a lifetime vacation. No one ever wants to go back to the real world. My friend Jack Crabtree and Bible teacher extraordinaire likens that experience probably something like uh, Woodstock. You know, this phenomenal, big, unique, uh, cultural, societal phenomenon that took place. And afterwards, it's like nobody wanted to leave. And of course, everybody always wanted to reproduce that. So a, a big event like that is what took place. Nobody ever wants to go back to the real world. How could you possibly bring yourself to leave a place where the apostles, who spoke on behalf of Jesus, were performing signs and wonders? I'd be staying on as long as possible. (laughs) I know my wife Angela, she'd be right there with me. Hey, let's hang out here. This is where it's happening. But the great Jerusalem sleepover (laughs) that happened in the days that followed the tremendous experience in the upper room was not ordinary life. The demands of fulfilling basic human needs soon forced life back to what was normal and sustainable. In the meantime, it caused a lot of problems. For even the apostles and all that came to Christ during the decades that followed during the first century— What happened immediately following Pentecost has never been successfully reproduced in all of history. Remember, the word apostle simply means messenger, not like angel. Angel also means messenger, but uh, it's more accurately uh, translated as one that is sent. It's like an ambassador who has the authority to speak on behalf of the president that's sent to a foreign country. Timothy was an apostle of the Apostle Paul. In other words, Paul appointed Timothy to go out and represent Paul in his teaching. Yet Timothy was not considered an apostle of Jesus. Being taught firsthand by an apostle of Jesus was a unique experience to the first century. There is no concise list located in the Bible, but there were unique things that all the apostles of Jesus held in common. I'm going to go over those. First, they were personally called and appointed by Jesus to represent him, speak on his behalf, and sent out on his behalf. This did not come by some feeling they had, nor did the appointment come via a third party. Being Jesus' apostle also was not handed down or passed on to them by another apostle. The appointment was face-to-face with Jesus, looking him in the eyes. Okay, secondly, what's unique to the apostles is they were all personally taught by Jesus, and they had personally witnessed his ministry. This, of course, happened to the apostle Paul also, but through divine revelation. Third, Although these signs and miracles were not exclusive to the apostles, signs and miracles did validate or provide additional credentials for their apostleship. Although the Roman Catholic Church claims that their popes have all served as links in a long unbroken chain of apostolic succession, none of them qualify as an apostle of Jesus according to this this criteria that I just read you. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says that those who heeded the call of Jesus at Pentecost, quote, continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, unquote, meaning they were soaking up and retaining the apostles' teaching. This is not surprising, given the apostles' unique 
qualifications and the recent indwelling of the Holy Spirit who was testifying to them that what the apostles were saying was true. And this was all while the apostles were performing signs and wonders. It was through the event of Pentecost that the apostles were immediately able to fulfill their commission to teach all nations. This was the Holy Spirit who made fulfilling Jesus' instructions to the apostles possible. In the book of Acts, Luke's version of Jesus' final instructions to his disciples reads this way. This is found in chapter 1, verse 8 of Acts. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Luke's version fits very nicely with what happened with the apostles just days after Jesus spoke his words to them. The Holy Spirit came over them in the upper room, and they went downstairs and spread the gospel to people literally from every nation under heaven. The first execution of the apostles' what's called Great Commission by many had been carried out by the end of Pentecost. Some still may claim to be apostles, but all indications are that today the apostles of Jesus are all long dead and gone. We can no longer sit directly under their teaching in person. However, their teaching is contained in the Bible, and we still have the fulfillment of the so-called Great Commission in written form. The Bible can be read or listened to and studied anywhere in the world today. I can sit steadfastly under the teaching of the apostles via the Bible, either by myself or with others, at home, at the lake, on a bus, on a treadmill, in front of the computer, or lying in bed sick, on a break at work, and yes, even in church. It's good to be around others who are mature in the faith and knowledgeable of Scripture. However, one does not need a degree or to be an ordained minister to understand what a carpenter, a tent maker, a first century doctor, and fisherman wrote about following Jesus, if one is indwelled by the Spirit of truth and committed to following truth. As far as we know, no one who left Jerusalem after sitting under the apostles' teachings, were given any degrees or certificates. Yet, they were qualified to return home and pass on what they had been taught. And they were doing so in the absence of having a New Testament. Of course, sound teaching still does occur among the churches, as opposed to the ecclesia, I'm saying. However, false, misleading, self-centered, and inaccurate teaching also occurs in many churches. Both types of teaching are coming from those who likely have degrees in theology, along with titles and some sort of unbiblical authority or ordination granted by those churches. Those who look to the Acts chapter 2 passage to support their claims that the Bible dictates that we must find ourselves in church at every opportunity and for pastors to be formally trained need to look elsewhere for their proof. Now let's talk about fellowship. The word fellowship used in Acts chapter 2 comes from the Greek word koinonia. It literally means partnership or participation. It's normally translated to mean fellowship, or to communicate, or commune with, or distribute. As used in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the use and translation of the word reads in English as though fellowship was one thing on a list of things that the ecclesia was doing while staying in Jerusalem. Fellowshipping recalls several images in modern Christian culture. Almost anything qualifies as fellowship today when two or more believers are gathered. We can play baseball together, go to a concert or have pie, attend a small group, discuss teaching someone has heard or pray for each other's needs, all those kind of things. Well, whereas those outside of the church merely socialize 
when they do the same type of things. Within the church, we think it's all in the name of what we see as fulfilling one of the primary responsibilities, that of loving one another. Getting to know each other, growing closer together, strengthening bonds and relationships. And as we do so, our concern for one another grows, as does our understanding and appreciation for one another. We know better the needs of each other, so we know how to serve each other and how to pray for one another in a more meaningful way. Well, those are all great things. The logic is sound, but it's not how the word fellowship is used in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Here's the New King James translation of verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, here's a literal translation just lifted directly from the Greek. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and participating together in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The word fellowship has been misunderstood in this passage. It's not a part of a four-part list, like uh, listening to teaching, and then number two is fellowshipping, then number three is eating, and number four is praying. Fellowship in this passage literally means to participate in something. They did not fellowship in the broad sense that we think of the word today, which is essentially any form of socializing within the ecclesia. Fellowshipping in this passage means that they shared group meals or broke bread together, and they prayed together. So fellowshipping, it's really more of a three-part list, not a four-part list. Fellowshipping does not stand on its own. It just means that they participated in eating and in praying together. A minor point, but nevertheless uh, an accurate point about what that passage means. Well, breaking bread together uh, is a big topic. Jews have a long tradition of breaking bread together that extends far back into history beyond the first century A.D. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. That's the prayer said before a family takes a meal together and bread is broken. In fact, this blessing is referred to as the breaking of bread blessing. Breaking bread was and is something that was always done in the context of taking a meal. Breaking bread referred to either the blessing of the meal or the meal itself. There were special ceremonial meals found in ancient Judaism. Each week on the Sabbath, Jews break bread and recite the breaking bread blessing. During the Passover, there are specific ceremonial meals in which bread is broken together. Every meal taken together among the ecclesia was, of course, not the Passover Seder, which utilized unleavened bread to represent Jesus' broken body. Feeding their faces together is not what came to be known as communion or the Eucharist. There is no historical documentation that indicates anyone was regularly and ceremonially practicing the ritual of communion, especially apart from a regular meal, until decades later, when the Apostle Paul raised the issue with the ecclesia at Corinth. The bottom line, breaking bread does not equal receiving communion in the book of Acts. Now let's talk about prayer and the temple. The day of Pentecost in question likely took place late in May, in or around the year 30 AD, during what's known as the Second Temple Period. During that period, the custom was for Jews to pray three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. The exact times depended on the season, since times were related to when the sun rose and set. Most of the people who gathered in the plaza outside of the building that the upper room was in during the Pentecost miracle were Jews, and they were in the habit of praying regularly, three times a day, every day. By this time in the history of Judaism, there's evidence that common liturgical prayers had developed and were in use. Many regular prayers were likely being recited rather than organically born out of one's heart. The Acts chapter 2 mention of continued steadfast prayer appears to only be documenting what Jews who traveled to the temple had been doing all along, continuing to steadfastly pray as usual. 
They prayed steadfastly, not breaking from their routine. They kept on doing what the Jews were doing in Jerusalem at the temple. Being campers in Jerusalem with no other obligations, such as a job, when the out-of-town called out ones who were not busy eating or listening to the teaching of the apostles, they needed a place to be. That place was the temple. The one and only temple was what made travel to Jerusalem necessary. It was an architectural marvel to behold and full of activity. It was more like a religious attraction than simply a place of worship. This was the center of Jewish life on earth, the place where the glory of God once resided. Christianity had not yet been separated out from the religious practices of Judaism. We're only days into Christianity here. Jesus came entirely in the context of Judaism, completely in the context of Judaism, and he fulfilled the Jewish prophecies as the Jewish Messiah. At this early stage, you know, only days into it, Christianity was embraced by Jewish believers in Jesus. He was embraced as the natural progression of Judaism, or a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and their beliefs. For devout Jews who did not live in or around Jerusalem, it was the place they always wanted to be when they were not there. It's the place where they offered their prayers three times a day. It's the place that Jews from every nation under heaven traveled to see. It's no surprise that while the out-of-town new members of the ecclesia could be found there while they were still in Jerusalem, all things considered, continuing with one accord daily in the temple does not support regular church attendance, as many imply. Now, if thousands of people are sticking around and camping out in Jerusalem with no credit cards and no way to earn money while they're there, there are going to be needs that must be met. How will we feed these out-of-towners, and who's going to pay for it? The answer was obvious to the Jerusalem locals. Let's have a garage sale. <laughs> I know, Peter. I have some possessions and goods sitting around the house that my family's not using. I'll sell them, and we can use the money for the needs of the visitors. There may be others that can spare a chicken or an egg or two. And someone else likely suggested... How about we have the visitors move from house to house for their meals in order to share the cooking responsibilities? Uh, of course, I'm just speculating there, having some good, clean fun. <laughs> well, soon after the earth-shaking miracle of Pentecost took place, there was an aftershock. Peter and John were met by some people carrying a man who was lame since birth. This took place at what's called the Beautiful Gate on their way to the temple for regular afternoon prayers. You know, one of those three times a day they go to the temple to pray. They healed the man in the name of Jesus. He got up and walked for the first time in his over 40-year-old life. This caused, you know, a ruckus, and about 5,000 more people came to believe Jesus was the Messiah because of that miracle. Peter and John were taken before the Jewish authorities and chastised for what they were proclaiming, that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, the officials eventually let them go. When they went back to their friends and told them what happened, they all prayed together. Then this happened. This is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The book of Acts then documents more of what occurred among the early ecclesias they initially remained together. They kicked up their sharing and generosity with each other several notches. Property and houses were sold, and the money from the proceeds was used by those who had run out of their own resources. However, where some translations read that, quote, everyone who owned land and houses sold them and donated the money, unquote. A more reasonable translation is, quote, everyone that sold their land and houses donated the money, unquote. Well, besides the original language allowing this translation, two other things suggest it's more accurate. Number one, there would be no place for anyone to stay if all the houses and property had been sold. 
it's likely that many did not sell their homes. And secondly, the scripture singles out some who sold their property as though not everyone did. In Acts chapter 5, the story goes on to say that one couple who sold their property and donated the money were untruthful as how much the property sold for, leading people to believe that they had donated all the money when they had not. This cost them their lives as they dropped over dead after being questioned by the Apostle Peter. Peter pointed out to this couple that their house, that the house, was their house to do with as they wanted, and no one was making anyone sell their homes or donate any money to the common good. This couple's death was not brought on by withholding money, but rather by their deceit. Moving on and talking about the communal system of the early ecclesia in Jerusalem. Well, it soon proved to be non-sustainable. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, we read, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Again, that's Acts chapter 11, 27 to 30. So the ecclesia living in Antioch after hearing this prophecy, even though they were subject to the same famine that took place throughout the whole world, they knew that the economic situation in Jerusalem was so much worse that they needed to send relief to them. What seemed like such a loving thing to do, selling off everything <laughs> to take care of immediate needs, may not have been the wisest thing in terms of taking care of the long-term needs of the people in Jerusalem. Yet, this unselfishness is often celebrated as one of the primary virtues of the early ecclesia. But while unselfishness and hospitality are certainly virtues, one might question the unlovingness and lack of wisdom of those who stayed in Jerusalem well beyond their original plans, placing a burden on those who lived there to the point that they had to sell their possessions to fund their guests' stay. When they left, they left their hosts with fewer financial resources. So, are we to model that behavior also? Just like now, for the early called-out campers, and those that hosted them, sharing and selling off all their possessions wasn't a part of a sustainable, long-term lifestyle. It was a loving reaction to a temporary, short-term, emergent need. There's a great deal of evidence in the rest of the New Testament that people of the first century ecclesia had jobs and they owned their own homes. Although it may have not been the norm for everyone to sell off their possessions and live communally after people began returning home, the love for others remained. Taking care of those within the ecclesia who found themselves in need continued. For example, when Paul wrote his first letter, that we know of anyway, to Timothy, he gave guidance concerning taking care of widows if the widow's relatives could not take care of them. However, if the relatives of the widows were able to take care of their needs of the widow, then the ecclesia was not to be burdened. That's a quote, to be burdened with such a need. So, winding down here, in conclusion, what happened at Pentecost with the primal or early ecclesia was a unique historical event recorded in the Bible. It accomplished the will of God, no doubt. There are many such events recorded in the Bible, like God delivering Noah and his family, the giving of the law to Moses, the walls of Jericho coming down, the miracles of Jesus. None of them were meant to serve as models of how to accomplish things in our times. All were meant to record fantastic things that happened when God directly intervened in history. So in understanding what to do with all this, we've got to ask this question. Why does anyone look at the unique historical decisions that the early ecclesia made and assume that those decisions 
must have been ordained by God as a part of some kind of formula for perpetual success amongst the ecclesia. We could have just as easily been conditioned, taught, preached at, to view what happened there in the days following Pentecost as a list of mistakes (laughs) that we should not desire to repeat. The actions of the earliest ecclesia were the result of trying to figure out what to do after corporately experiencing a mind-blowing, transformative event. As with anything, when there's no precedent and humans are figuring things out for the first time, mistakes are made. As we see in the rest of the book of Acts, especially in regards to the apostles and their, their interactions with each other, toes are stepped on. Feelings are hurt. Mistakes are made. (laughs) Well, in reaction, we'll see actions are taken to cope with problems as the new Christian social order unfolds and eventually transitions into a new religion apart from Judaism. Well, that's it for this time. Next time, we're going to start in on the letters of the Apostle Paul. But until then, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.